Welcome to episode 59 of FRT, the IAF podcast on the intersection of finance, regulation and technology. I'm Brad Carr, and this is our download from Davos. Corporate and government leaders from around the globe are here for the annual World Economic Forum. We're in prime position here at Refinitiv's Davos headquarters, just outside of the main Congress Centre, and I'm joined by two of our industry's experts who will share their key takeaways from the week. Sim Shabalala is the Chief Executive Officer of Standard Bank, Africa's largest bank. And while Sim is number one at Standard Bank, he's the second Standard Bank representative to join us on FRT. Annalise Schnarr-Campbell joined us back on episode 37, where she joined me to debrief the 2019 IAF Digital Finance Symposium. And of course, Sim is also a member of the IAF's Board of Directors, which met earlier this week. Sherry Madeira is the Chief Industry and Government Affairs Officer of Refinitiv, having previously had an extensive career with the UK Trade and Investment and the City of London as their lead representative in China. Sherry has led a large Refinitiv presence here through the week in Davos, including on a FinTech for Good panel that we both spoke on earlier in the week. Sim and Sherry, thanks for joining us and welcome to FRT. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much, Brad. Sim, I want to start looking across the week. What have been your key observations and takeaways from the week here in Davos? So, Brad, coming from where I come, which is at the southern tip of the African continent, it was interesting to move from an environment with an average temperature of around 30 degrees during the day to, you know, between minus 12 and zero. Uh, so that was quite interesting. Well, we're here by local standards, but it's very different to the Johannesburg summer, isn't it? Yeah. But what was striking uh, and why that point I think is relevant is that in South Africa, there have been very few weeks or months during which temperatures are at around 30 to 35 degrees. And yet in the last month, that's been the case almost every day for, mm. for weeks. It's also relevant because there we were flying in our large aircraft, some sitting at the front of the aeroplane, some sitting at the back. I'm not sure where you are sitting. Some flying in their jets and driving up the mountain to come and have serious discussions about a whole range of things, including climate change. And for me, like many people, I felt a sense of unease and mm-hmm. contradiction about that. I have a 17-year-old daughter and a 19-year-old daughter. They are exceptionally bright young ladies and they're very aggressive about climate change. So I've had to explain to them why it's important to be here. And that is also relevant because as a senior executive, I feel a sense of contradiction between people in my age group, in my profession and what I do for a living and those young people. And that manifested itself here too, Mr. Trump, Ms. Tulberg. I think this issue then, this major contradiction manifested itself in many different ways. Um, the North and the South, China, the United States, big business, big government, the absence of civil society. And you saw that in the various panels, but you also saw it in various conversations that the people were having. The big themes from a financial services perspective are, you know, what's the role of business, the distinction between state capitalism, shareholder capitalism, stakeholder capitalism, the validity of those three categories. I had the privilege of attending a panel with Martin Wolf, Neil Ferguson, various other luminaries. And the debate was exactly this. What's the future and role of capitalism? What's the future and role of democracy? And Ferguson made a stunning point, which was, yes, the CEOs well represented here. There's big government well represented here. There's a smattering of civil society, but everybody is talking about the role business should be doing. And there's an absence of the discussion about actually a lot of what we're talking about is the province of organs of civil society. 
Let me make one more point, and that is that the financial sector, whether we be banks, insurers, people who provide services to us, we are facing incredible pressures and contradictions relating to our role in climate change, ESG debate, our contribution to SDGs, uh, how transparent are we, and so forth. And it's a, I think it's a profound moment. Uh, perhaps let me stop there. Well, I think, you know, if I want to pick up that point, and, and on our last episode, we spoke with Douglas Flint, the Standard Life Aberdeen Chairman, and one of his anticipations coming into the week was the sense that overwhelmingly business and the financial community are now very focused on the environmental issues and on making sure that we can do something to confront the rather urgent need there. But I'm not sure how we translate that yet into tangible action and that perhaps some of this week is a sense of the recognition of the urgency, but there's still this challenge of how do we actually translate that into something tangible? Is that sort of the feel of the mood that you get? It is, but it raises also quite a sharp set of contradictions because it also depends on which part of the world you're coming from. So mm. I would say to you, coming from South Africa, these debates are central in everything we do. So if we decide to lend to a mining house, well, the backbone of the South African economy is the mining industry. Yes. So how do we think about Article 4 in that context? I can't, as a banker, simply say I'm just interested in maximizing returns and profits and I don't care about the environment. Simultaneously, the contradiction between the E and the S if we say we are terminate all loans to the mining industry, particularly coal, what implications has that got for joblessness in a country with yep. unemployment of 29%? That's the conflict, isn't it? That's that that if, conflict, we, yeah. if we take a dramatic stance on the yeah. environment, we might do the right thing there, but it's the poorest people in the world exactly. that, that will suffer most directly. Yeah. yeah. But, but like you say, though, these debates are now front and centre, mm. which is great. Mm. I think it's fantastic. Mm. Sherry, how about for you? What have been your key observations and the key takeaways you've had from the week? I think I probably need to declare myself as this being my first Davos. So, uh, you know, for me, uh, I have no benchmark on which to base these observations. But from sort of absorbing from those who are true veterans of a trip to the World Economic Forum, I think the voices are saying that this debate on sustainability and this debate on climate change has never been so completely immersive as it has been in this week. In fact, you could have a list of three or four things you may want to cover during any bilateral meetings or indeed on a panel session. And it gets moved right back into that square spot of the urgency of the issue about climate change, how we deploy capital, and how is it that we can take this to an action-oriented next 10 years. And I welcome that. You know, I think that having that focus now, I think, is going to really be an interesting call to arms for not only those that are physically here, but the circles upon which they move. And hopefully the pervasiveness of and the immersiveness of what we're experiencing this week will quickly ricochet out into the rest of the world. But I also think that you know, there are angles that are coming up in this debate that we shouldn't miss, which is how technology fits in. And I think that we're in an interesting time at the moment that technology is giving people the power to be able to join this debate and actually make some really tangible decisions. If they choose to make those decisions or not is remaining to be seen and and how quickly we act on decisions, for example, that I don't want to buy a certain plastic or making sure that the supply chain for what I'm acquiring, what I'm consuming is sustainable. But actually, the technology in all of our pockets these days allows us actually to be Greta Thunberg and Donald Trump in our way. Mm. I think one of the things I'm taking away is that the person 
is starting to become a really important mover in this. Not just the attendees of Davos, but everyone out there who's starting to consider not only the millennials, what is it that our role in making this a reality is going to take forward? So I think the technology piece is interesting. And kind of extending from there, slightly away from the climate topic, is this discussion about cryptocurrencies? Mm. How is it that you have a different store of value? What is the backing for some of that? Where is the value? Where are the regulations that keep us safe? And interestingly, it's quite a lot of this discussion has been with the central banks. So this concept of the digital currency coming from the central banking community seems to have grown in terms of the discussion point. So, Mm. you know, it's not just about Libra. It's not just about Bitcoin. And, you know, I find that quite interesting because the debate is accelerating quite quickly with those that some might say are perhaps the ones that are the the slowest movers, the ones that are the most risk adverse, you know, dipping their toe into this topic, which I think is quite interesting. So you hit on there something I thought was really interesting. Christian Carlo is here and has been speaking about his digital dollar proposal. And at the Global Blockchain Business Council's event, I think he made exactly the point you were just alluding to, that the US, if it pursues his digital dollar idea, will not be the first to launch a digital currency. They don't want to be the first. I mean, you can learn from the others. Um, China is probably going to be the first of the major economies to, to launch. But I agree with you that Libra has had its contribution perhaps in galvanising the central bank community, but it's not really going to be the dominant piece going forward. I think it's more likely whatever PPOC coin ends up looking like, whether there is a digital dollar and, and how others respond. And I guess indeed in South Africa, the, yeah. the, the SAR central is bank is on, thinking about yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, I think that the other you know pervasive takeaway, and I'm, I'm interested in you know, Sam's view on this as well, is that it kind of always keeps coming back around to, well, we need the data to make some of these decisions. You know, be they on talking about deploying blockchain, be that on climate change, on activating capital against either ESG or the other wonderful acronym SDGs. It comes back to, do we have the data? Are we using it right? Where are the gaps? And of course, as a big data company ourselves with Refinitiv, you know, it feels like a real call to arms. Well, if I may just jump in there, Sherry, I think you're 100% correct that my biggest worry and something that does keep me up at night is just the proliferation of standards Mm -hmm. and rules and acronyms. I mean, I get confused and I think there is a need for a conversation amongst regulators and and businesses and interested parties to standardize the terminology and to standardize the rules. We've got an alphabet soup of standards and it's very, very hard to be compliant. So let's go with that theme for a moment. I do want to come back and share a couple of other takeaways from this week and get your reactions. But let's go with the the data point for a moment, both on a cross-sectoral and a cross-border basis. One of the things that we've been advocating at the IAF is the need for greater consistency in data frameworks and data policies. You're in a particularly interesting place in South Africa where you're the largest bank in Africa. You're a South African bank, but in many ways you're a pan-African bank operating across many jurisdictions. The take-up of cloud is increasing in the financial sector in, in Africa right at the moment. And one of the greatest challenges in implementing cloud is trying to operate that across borders. Quite so. And then, of course, and Sherry, I think, you know, we've talked and indeed on our panel yesterday talked about to be able to get better at combating financial crime, we need to have better systems for being able to share data between firms and with governments and across borders to help improve the the reference data set that we can then deploy AI algorithms and the like. But so, Sim, you know, from your point of view in South Africa, how critical is this issue of trying to have greater consistency or commonality in the the data ecosystems, the data policy frameworks across the continent? Oh, Brad, that is just such an important point. We operate in 20 countries on the African continent. And what we're finding is that whilst we need, from a risk management perspective, to have frictionless and 
completely interconnected systems, processes, and clear view of our data and information and make sure that it's able to move swiftly and easily through our systems and our jurisdictions. We are finding that the authorities, for sovereignty reasons, for AML and terrorism financing reasons, want to have more control and power over their data. So one can understand it from a sovereignty perspective, but the balkanization and the breaking up and the insistence on having you know, cloud in situ, uh, making sure data is kept inside countries, whether it be South Africa, Zimbabwe, Botswana, whatever the case may be, makes running a integrated financial services organization across the continent well nigh impossible. Mm. The argument, the sovereignty argument and the safety argument, you know, the argument is often that we need the data so that we can firstly control and therefore manage risk. Yeah. I would offer, as you know, and it's the case that's being made by most of us in the industry, that that actually increases risk because you want a global system that is interconnected that is interoperable, where data is moving freely between jurisdictions and places. You want the major players, whether it be uh, AWS or Visa or MasterCard, to be able to aggregate data easily, to be able to use the scale that they've got, the staff that they've got, in a scalable manner, wherever those people may be sitting, rather than fragment them. So how many Mm -hmm. people would be deployed to Mauritius, for example, by AWS or by Visa or by MasterCard? And so just in summary, it's, a, it's an extremely worrying trend that uh, you're seeing authorities wanting to localize. You can understand it from a sovereignty perspective, but there has to be a conversation about sovereignty and risk. And the fact that balkanizing actually increases risk. We see that consistently. Uh, and, you know, for Refinitiv, you know, we provide risk solutions to many, many banks around the world. And we're very close to this issue. And you're absolutely right that risk increases uh, with the more localization of each of the data sets. This is not a new topic. You know, if you look at the G20 and Abe's call for data free flow with trust. Bites without borders. You know, absolutely. It makes perfect sense. But, you know, that's the, that's not even 30,000, that's 50,000 foot statement. We need to get down to sort of how it is that we're able to really make that more practical. And I know profitability sometimes is a dirty word, but frankly, if you are running a bank or if you're running a financial institution, having to deploy the same structure and infrastructure in different places around the world and then not even be able to cohabitate that data anywhere in any jurisdiction because you can't take it out, you're actually loading a bunch of cost on there and increasing your risk. Mm. And, you know, frankly, the real risk is that there will be sections of the world which desperately need financing which will be more and more unbanked. Yeah. I've been sensitive to the cost point of, of what you were just describing, but the risk side I thought was well articulated by Joanne Stonia yesterday, the Chief Data Officer of MasterCard, and her point was when you start having local copies of data sitting in multiple places, you're just creating so many more points of weakness or points of vulnerability where someone with ill intent... And the bandits go to the weakest link, right? Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. And if you proliferate these links, you're going to have weak links. Absolutely. If we can briefly add... The financial crime element to, to the lens in terms of some of these restrictions on sharing data. And you know, we often talk about the opportunity where artificial intelligence will help to hopefully get us a quantum uplift in our level of detection. But we still have this issue of having a limited reference data set that we don't have the feedback loop from law enforcement of understanding which of the suspicious transactions genuinely led somewhere. I know this is an area that Refinitiv's had a lot of focus on. What's top of mind for you in the work in Refinitiv in this space at the moment? Yeah, I think that what's very much top of mind is the proliferation of of data privacy laws around the world. 
GDPR is one of many, and GDPR luckily, you know, has recognized the fact that there does need to be a availability of transferring personal data for these sort of purposes. But there are many, many privacy laws that are out there now that have institutionalized the right to be forgotten without any reference to being able to share that. We called it bandits or criminals or whatnot, but actually it's creating a safe haven for them. If they have a right to be forgotten and that's where their jurisdiction is, you know, goodness, we're really kind of you know, fighting against ourselves here for, for the purpose. So we're concerned about things that are proliferating now in the U.S. You know, we see the California data privacy legislation and so much talk about the other states. Where does that go with federal? Uh, you know, this is quite a lot of hard work in terms of sort of really clarifying the barriers we're putting up ourselves to achieving a reasonable amount of fighting financial crime. The statistics now are abysmal. They really are. You know, the amount of cost that is being put in by banks far outscales, you know, what the FBI spends. Uh, and what are we catching? One to two percent. That's the, the Europol it, set. Yep. Absolutely. And, you know, that number is bandied around. But if you really take a minute to think about it, shame on us a as a society to, to be doing that. Yeah. It's, it's a waste of resources. Mm-hmm. Um, and that we've got to be able to do this differently. So, you know, at 30,000 foot, that, you know, that's, that's what we're looking at. But we're also innovating. And I think that there's always an opportunity. It's not all you know, doom and gloom in terms of regulation out there. There's recognition of this in many places, in which case we need to keep working on how it is we can create more intelligent links. So, you know, one degree, two degree, you know, four degree of separation in order to really understand sort of how some of these people, organizations, cash flows are linked together so that we can create flags that can be acted upon or indeed understood better. Not everything is nefarious, but we just need to have those base cases even more intricately linked together. The one point on AI, machine learning and all of that that is very close to my heart and you're aware of it is that my view is that the IF is doing great work in trying to get to some standards or some ethical principles that apply to machine learning and AI. And I think they have to be commended for it. The environment that I come from, I worry immensely about unconscious bias, conscious bias, the assumptions that people make when they build models and making sure that they are free of bias. Now, somebody might turn around and say, but the very proposition by me about the need for free bias is exhibiting bias. We could have that philosophical discussion. But I think that, it is that, important. That never ends then, does it? Yeah, that never ends. It's like a circular, a circular <laughs> argument. But I think it is important to have more global standards, a more reflective approach to the ethics of models and the use of data. I think there's a lot of things that can be done in helping to safeguard against model bias, whether it's in the external validation of the data sets that are chosen for training algorithms, whether it's having diversity amongst the development team working on it. Transparency. Absolutely. So one of the things that we'll be focusing a lot in the the coming half year at the IF is around having the suite of good example practices for how you safeguard against bias. And I'd use that phrase, example good practices deliberately, because I don't think it's a singular best practice. It depends on the nature of the algorithm you're using, how you're using the application. But I think we need to have a a suite of good example practices for how you can help to to guard against that and how you can ensure transparency. Mm -hmm. And perhaps the role of both the internal control functions and supervisors is around ensuring that you've chosen a good technique and you've got an explanation as to why you chose that technique and not one of the others. Exactly. Sherry, let's touch on the Sustainable Data Alliance, which is a a great initiative and and one that, uh, that Refinitiv has had a big focus here this week. Can you just tell us a little bit about why that's important? Yeah, uh, thank you. And a big thank you to IIF for being our partner on the Future of Sustainable Data Alliance. 
For us, this is a coalition of the willing. You know, this is a group um, that uh, includes the World Economic Forum, includes the IIF, includes the UN, and a number of other players, including those in Asia, which I think is really important to get a global mix. Its purpose here is, is you know, we talk a lot about data, but we are not sure what we might need in the future in order to be able to deal with some of these sustainability issues. The, the purpose of the alliance is to go and, and find out that question, answer the question, what is the wish list of investors and regulators? What would they love to be able to have great data on in order to be able to create benchmarks, in order to be able to make sure that capital is flowing in the right way? You know, I think that this is a really timely question to ask because it should be feeding in to all the other great work that's already going on. You know, Simi, you talked about acronyms. I think in terms of groups gathering, you know, there are more acronyms about climate change and sustainability sort of working groups than any other sector. The question is, why would you form another alliance? You know, goodness knows this will go to acronyms soon enough. But the answer is that actually we see this if we're focused on data and really answering those questions about what exists now, what doesn't exist, but what do we need? The regulators and industry can prepare well and help fill those gaps. Yeah. It's not just about ESG. I think we talk a lot about ESG, and certainly there's a huge amount of work to do there. Refinitiv tracks 7,000 companies with 450 different data points. Goodness knows we know ESG data, and there are holes there. But alternative data sets are also in need. And so those are the two pieces that I think we need to look forward to. And one of the other goals at the Alliance we can't forget is seeing how technology can make usage of this data more efficient and more effective. So big, ambitious goals, but quite tight and focused so that we can feed into everyone else's work. To conclude, I want to share a couple of takeaways I had from the week, and please uh, invite your reactions, uh, Sherry and Sim. I was really struck by a comment that Manu Shafik of the London School of Economics and formerly of the Bank of England, she gave an interesting anecdote, I guess, at the LSE, that now all students there, regardless of faculty, and she stresses that it is a social sciences institution, that all students now have to do a year of data science as part of their first year curriculum. I thought that was a really interesting insight. It ties into some of what we've found around the, the shortage of the skills in that sector and, and the war for talent in that space. So hopefully that's a really constructive measure that we'll see elsewhere across the, the universities around the globe. At the same time, she also added that her advice for, for children and for students, perhaps looking at their place in the world and what they want to study in an increasingly automated and digitised world, is to focus on the skills that complement coding. And she gave the example that in the health sector, for instance, it may increasingly be the robot that does the diagnosis, but, it, but the human will always need to be there to hold the patient's hand and talk them through the treatment plan. And the other one I wanted to share was from Benedict Evans speaking this morning at the, the NASDAQ protocol breakfast. The point he made was about the S-curve of each new technology and that each technology starts off perceived as stupid. And then it moves into the phase where it's exciting, where the uptake really increases. And then finally, it moves into the stage where it's boring. And his point was that each technology has been successively surpassed by the next big tech development moving on to its own S-curve. And he gave the example of the transition we've seen from mainframes to then PCs, the web, and now smartphones. And his observation was that we're really hitting that boring phase now of the smartphone S-curve, posing the question, perhaps, what's next? What's the next S-curve? There's interesting reactions, whether uh, they were my key uh, tidbits, perhaps, of the week, but whether or not those resonate. They do. They would be my short answer. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, gosh, you know, thinking about beyond the smartphone is certainly beyond me. <laughs> but uh, I think it's uh, the right question to ask. Ten years ago, we probably didn't conceive of how ubiquitous these devices would be now. So uh, yes, it uh, changed. It was, I think it was uh, Prime Minister Trudeau of Canada a couple of years ago at the G20 that said 
the the world has never changed as quickly as it is right now, and it will never change as slowly as this ever again in the future. <laughs> However, if you just look at the history of industrial revolutions, starting with the first one in the early 1800s, it's quite staggering to see that the language used by us today relative to new developments and new innovations is almost identical. The fears, the concerns, the bewilderment, you know, the wondering about the future, exactly the same. Interesting. Well, Sim and Sherry, thank you both for joining us. Appreciate you both joining us here on FRT. Sherry and Refinitiv, appreciate you hosting us here at your Davos headquarters. Delighted. Thank you, Sherry. It's obviously been a very big week through all of those different themes that I've mentioned at Davos, so I won't try to summarise any highlights out of those. I think both of you have shared a number of great insights for us. But looking ahead on FRT, we're going to debrief the first paper in our three-part series with Deloitte on Digital Transformation. And I hope I'm not on treacherous ground promoting a Deloitte project while I'm here at Refinitiv. Uh, but we have, uh, we, we, uh, we'll be publishing our paper at the end of January on the top nine barriers to transformation that we've identified from interviews with Chief Digital and Chief Innovation Officers from 60 firms around the globe. And we're also going to look further at the digital dollar, the proposal that Chris Giancarlo has been promoting. Chris spoke with us on episode 54 of FRT in amongst the big crowded halls of the Singapore FinTech Festival. He and Dan Morphine have made a few more announcements, including in St. Marie's last week and here at Davos this week. And so we're going to pick that up again further with them. Please join us for those upcoming episodes. I'm Brad Carr. Thanks for joining us on FRT.